Welcome to the Airport Experience News Podcast. I'm Ramon Lowe, the host of this pod. The event of 2020 is right around the corner. Yes, it is. If you do business in this industry, or if you want to do business in this industry, then you need to be at the Airport Experience Conference, which is strictly for the airport experience industry. The conference takes place March 1st to the 4th in Denver, Colorado at the Gaylord Rockies Convention Center. Register now at conference.airportxnews.com. Well, this is episode 85, the first episode of the new year. So exciting. And can't think of a better topic to cover on this podcast and to kick off a new year with such promise than uh, robotics. Here I chat with Cynthia Young. Um, essentially, she is a robotics expert, but I really like the term she uses, and that's a robotics evangelist. And listen, uh, we've seen the machines like Brigo, Yokai Express, and many others out there. It's just a matter of time uh, before this fad or phenomenon really becomes the norm in airports. Anyway, I met Cynthia when she was the CEO of Cafe X, and uh, she's had such she has such great insight into the history and trends on robotics that I really just had to have her on the pod. So here is my conversation with Cynthia Young. So I am joined by Cynthia Young, who is a robotics executive, advisor, and angel investor. She is also formerly the COO of Cafe X, which you can find in SFO in San Jose, International Airports. And she was the robot evangelist for SoftBank Robotics. Cynthia, thanks for taking the time to speak with me. Thanks for having me. Excellent. So you and I met uh, in Las Vegas, oh gosh, almost a year ago now when you were at Cafe X and really loved the machines. Uh, you know, I, I think it's just a great, brave new world, I guess I want to say, for this industry as, as far as providing an experience and something and a little bit of a showmanship as well. And we saw it with Brigo and, and other other. Uh, machines that are similar. So wanted to have you on because again, robotics is something that um, I'm not personally interested in, but I'm interested in as far as how it will impact um, our industry. So before we get into all that, I would love for you to really share your background in this space. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, ever since I was a, a little girl, always loved the idea of robots. I read a lot of uh, Isaac Asimov growing up. And in particular, <laughs> there was this one character, uh, Susan Calvin, who appears in a number of his short stories, especially. Um, and she was, her, uh, I think, uh, widely renowned as the world's first robot psychologist. Now, obviously, that profession did not exist, and I think still doesn't quite exist to this day. Uh, but, you know, as a, as a consequence of, uh, you know, reading a lot of Asimov and other science fiction, ended up, uh, you know, graduating with degrees in both uh, engineering and business uh, from wow. the University of Pennsylvania. Um, and I ended up at, at Google for about five years, where I was part of the early uh, Google X team. Um, after a couple of startups, um, I ended up joining SoftBank Robotics as a robot evangelist, uh, leading some of their product initiatives, um, and then uh, landed at Cafe X as their COO, spearheading uh, their airport uh, launches in particular. So that's sort of very exciting. Um, most recently, I now find myself in Austin, Texas, uh, consulting and advising a number of robotics startups in the area. My wife, uh, she graduated with her PhD in robotics, um, and she's also currently based in Austin, which is why we're both here. So Austin, pretty great city to be in. Um, I, I believe you were based in the Bay Area, area prior, correct? Yes, I uh, was in the Bay Area for about a decade, uh, working for Google Apps. Various startups, uh, SoftBank Robotics, Cafe X, um, and so I just moved uh, to Austin um, uh, a couple months ago. Great. Well, like I say, great little city. And congratulations. <laughs> yeah. No. Thank so, you. Uh, obviously, 
you, you like the science fiction and you like the application and um, would love for you to share a little bit of the recent history of robotics um, as applied really to food and retail uh, and the tasks that really impact food and retail, but maybe you can kind of go a little further um, as far as you know the history of it. It seems like in the last decade-ish or so, we really, or I've seen a lot more uh, advancement in the space. Yeah, absolutely. And and so, you know, really kind of depends on how you define uh, robotics and automation. But, you know, you could even go back to the automats of the 60s and 70s as examples um, of, you know, uh, food retail in particular. But, you know, I, I would argue that even a dishwasher um, is a robot. And so some of the commercial, uh, you know, dishwashers that you see uh, could be considered examples of robotics um, in, uh, in food. More recently, though, I think, as you've correctly identified, a number of really exciting startups have, you know, popped up on the horizon. Um, I think one of the older ones is probably Creator at this point. It was previously known as Momentum Machines. They're a burger-making robot. Uh, they've started uh, on this project since 2009. Um, you know, slightly more recently than that, there's, um, you know, Itza, which is now known as Brightloom, um, and they're kind of the modern reinvention of the automats of the 60s and 70s. Um, there's, you know, Zoom Pizza, which, you know, actually there was a couple of articles more recently about how they've kind of been struggling a little bit um, on, on that front. Um, and of course, you know, Cafe X um, and a number of other uh, robots that have been tackling the food and retail challenge. Do you see the rise in, in this space? I mean, what, what is the trigger in the rise of, of uh, robotics? I, I have to say that I'm sure it's labor costs, well, is probably driving, at least in our space. So it's kind of, I spoke to a number of people on different subjects and whenever labor comes up and the good news is that, you know, unemployment's down. The bad news is that unemployment is down. So yeah. when you have these kinds of experiences like a Cafe X, Brigo, et cetera, that kind of spurs a lot more innovation or at least attention in the space, correct? Absolutely, absolutely. So um, it's a couple of things. So the first I think is on the technological front, the technology is actually now at a point where it can be used you know, reliably at a you know, sort of relatively affordable price. I, I think that wasn't true you know, a couple of decades ago. Um, if you think back to like, you know, the early IBM mainframes, right, where they took up an entire room, <laughs> it'd be impossible to use you know, those types of technologies in you know, a sort of relatively confined small space like an airport. So that's the first thing is that technology has improved to the point where you know, we can start to use it. Um, and then the other, of course, is um, on the demographic side of things, um, you, you, you sort of see this in the U.S. I think you see this even more in countries like Japan, uh, mm -hmm. where there's just, um, you know, there's just fewer people to go around. Um, you know, uh, un unemployment is down um, and maybe the younger generation aren't as interested um, in jobs that require, you know, high degrees of manual labor. You know, they're kind of more uh, knowledge workers for the most part. And so you start to see some of the tasks that, you know, in robotics, we, you know, very often refer to as, you know, dull, dirty and dangerous being delegated to robots. Um, and I think one thing that's also important to take note of here is that, you know, there's a lot of discussion around the impact of, uh, you know, robotics and automation on jobs. I think very often, you know, from a roboticist perspective, it's less about, um, you know, the impact of robotics on jobs, and it's more about the impact of robotics on tasks. So each job comprises a multiple tasks, and there are certain tasks that really should be delegated to the robot so that the human can focus on the higher level aspects of their job, whatever it so happens to be. Um, and, you know, a really kind of easy example, you know, from a food retail perspective is, you know, if you take, a, take the job, you know, the job 
quote unquote, of chef back to say like a hundred years ago, it probably included drawing water from a well. Um, and, you know, that was just part of the job of, you know, whoever was working in the kitchen, you got to stock the firewood, you got to you know, bring out the water, but you know, that's not what a chef is really meant to do. Right. And so you, you start to see like, um, things like Cafe X where like, hey, like, you know, you have like the barista, but now in Starbucks very often they're using automated machines and the human um, is really just kind of pressing buttons on the machine. Well, why is the human being doing that? Why aren't they, you know, educating customers about, you know, the different types of, you know, coffee varietals, um, you know, that can be offered? Why aren't they providing better customer service? Why aren't they like, you know, for example, at Creator, you know, devising new types of recipes instead of flipping burgers? Um, and so I think it's, it's really about uh, specific tasks within a job that should be delegated to robots. Wow. You know, that one answer of yours just triggered like several new <laughs> questions in me. Yeah, um, but staying on uh, on labor, obviously it's going to impact things, right? Uh, yes. uh, you know, we're going to draw into Andrew Yang talking about how um, all this automation robotics is going to replace yeah, UBI. People. I yes. love the conversation around that. It, it is. And I think it kind of... Um, and probably rightly so, it might scare a lot of folks who are in the the, the areas or the industries with jobs that are just redundant um, tasks, right? Um, who might see that as a threat. I mean, so do you see robotics really just redistributing labor as opposed to um, replacing it? Yeah, so I, I've actually done a number of uh, talks on this topic. Um, so I think there's a short-term and a long-term answer, mm -hmm. right? And I think in the long term, what it's really going to be about is, um, you know, redistribution and, you know, just better education on, you know, the skills that will be needed for the jobs of the future, right? You know, whether it's programming or whether um, actually I think very often it's just kind of more human interaction, right? Communication is something that I think uh, robots just aren't very good at to this day. Um, and, and so that's something that I think will always um, have a place for, you know, humans in the loop, so to speak. Um, but, you know, in the short term, you know, I think that, you know, there is a very understandable fear um, around, you know, as, you know, specific tasks uh, become delegated robots, you know, how many jobs, um, you know, even if that job still exists, how many jobs will be available for humans? And there yeah. is kind of a, a short-term, um, you know, uh, situation there that I don't think we can ignore. And I, I think that's, you know, very exciting to see people like Andrew Yang, for example, you know, kind of really addressing that head on you know, yes. with ideas like UBI. No, definitely. And I think um, we're, again, I'm, I'm approaching this from the lamest perspective. You know, I, I've over the last year-ish or so, you know, I've been reading more and more about, let's say Walmart, for example, where mm. they were testing several stores. Um, Bossa Nova, yes. Yes, we go up and down and, and I guess, uh, what, automatically order anything that's out of stock or just do some redundant work that would then free those Inventory people Inventory checking, yeah. Yeah, and free those folks up to then, uh, like you said, perform tasks that like robots are not able to do just yeah, which is like, you know, um, casually engage someone in conversation, say, how's it going? You know, can I help you find something? Or what, and or, and or, actually, their actual restocking, um, I think, is still done from uh, humans. So my understanding of uh, Boston Nova and uh, sort of their- oh, Reordering, reordering. Like yes, reordering, yes. yes. Yeah, so that the actual stocking would still need to be done by human beings. Um, and, you know, if you actually study uh, grocery um, and retail, um, uh you know, and all the sort of processes involved. There's actually a lot of it that's um, also around marketing, right? Like, you know, how do you place certain products more prominently? How do you display them more prominently so that people will be more likely to pick one product versus another? That's actually um, a, a large part of the experience too. 
um, you know, when you think about your broader grocery retail economics? Well, isn't, again, I'm, I'm way out of my depth here, but isn't that really just going to be data and algorithms? Because after a while, you, you capture all that data and you, if you know the particular soda, let's say, hey, sells better or I mean, that's something that just could be pro- uh, programmed as you collect the data and then that robot can figure that out, right? I mean, Absolutely. it's not a style. I think, I think, I guess we're, 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 we're towing the line between art and science in some ways, I guess. Is that accurate? Um, there's part of that, uh, but part of it is also that you need uh, someone to create the initial variables mm-hmm. yeah. so that you can collect the data, right? So I think absolutely from a data kind of uh, processing or analytics perspective, there's you know certainly um, you know different types of software that can kind of approach that particular problem. But if you're looking at it from a more creative front, um, like say, uh, what do the price tags look like? What colors they should be? Someone still needs to make that initial decision and implement and execute on it so that you can then collect the data and analyze it after the fact and make decisions after the fact. But that initial kind of variable, that initial creative variable um, is still, I think, very human driven. Like, you know, if you think about... um, uh, say like, you know, like Costco, for example, where they have like, you know, their food samples or, or whatnot. Sure, you can collect data on the back end to see like to what extent these things actually drive sales, but someone still needs to be executing and implementing this on the front end. Yeah, so uh, I'm glad you mentioned that. So I'm going to go back to something you mentioned in terms of like the education part. I think you mentioned that in one of your previous answers. And I guess in some ways, this is really, this advancement is just elevating the skills floor. Right. So you're not necessarily going to be the person that's that's hammering the nail or, Mm -hmm. you know, on an assembly line, but you will be that person who is working on the rope servicing the robot or creating the program or something that would servicing the robot, making sure that people are actually using the robot to its fullest capabilities, Um, you know, very often, uh, whether it's, you know, software or hardware. Um, a lot of these technologies are actually capable of so much more, but it's hard to just get everyone trained up on it to use, you know, even the most basic of functionalities to begin with. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I think your uh, your point about, you know, raising that sort of skills floor is, is correct. So I have a 10-year-old son and he, um, you know, he's been going to a STEM camp for the last, I want to say five years, actually. And it's great. So we, I guess... I guess from your opinion, at the rapid pace that things advance and evolve, et cetera, I guess we should really be starting now at at someone at his age, if not younger, to kind of get them geared towards this area because gosh knows what what we'll be seeing, maybe not even in our lifetime, but in someone else and in his lifetime, I guess, right? Absolutely. And and I would, you know, just sort of take a quick moment here uh, to, you know, obviously STEM is, you know, incredibly important, but um, I think kind of in more recent years, um, we've kind of added a letter to that. Uh, STEAM. And so, <laughs> STEAM, exactly. Yes. And so, you know, the arts um, and the humanities yeah. um, are definitely not something that, you know, we should ignore because very often sometimes the most interesting and innovative ideas um, aren't coming from a purely kind of you know engineering perspective. It's really about understanding the sort of uh, human interface. You know, how do humans respond to something, whether it's logical or emotional? Um, and you know, really understanding that aspect is going to be critical. Um, you know, for the jobs of the future. I guess it's kind of like what Steve Jobs did, right? I mean, he he was a he went to a liberal arts school, and and he saw. I guess it started with the design uh, and, and the function and, and then it produced a product. And 
I, I guess you're right. You just kind of melding those two kind of mindsets. Cause I, I'm coming from more of a practical standpoint. Hey, I have a problem with this, build it to solve problem X. And you're yeah. saying it, it, we can create something by adding the artistic or was it the left brain element, I guess, to, 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 uh, to this advance. Uh, left hand, right brain. Yes. Left hand, right brain. So yes, adding the left hand, right brain um, approach to, to this advancement, right? Yeah, and I think like, you know, um, if you read some of the biographies of, of Steve Jobs, you know, he had sort of said at one point that one of his favorite and most um, impactful classes apparently in college was a Biography. class. Yes, yeah. exactly. Like exactly. Talking, I, yeah. I, I believe we have read the same biography. Yes, yeah, so Walter Isaacson. Uh, yeah, I read it three exactly. times. Oh, wow. Okay, that is definitely more times than I read. Um, no, because it, it's great. Because it, there, there was also a story about... Um, he enjoyed a certain knife from Japan because of the way it was made. And then, or mm-hmm. he was disappointed in, wow, this is, um, I don't know, he picked up some product and it was great until he saw like a flaw in it. And mm-hmm. he thought, no, it's not so perfect anymore, even though it could still perform the same function. But you're right. It's it's the whole uh, adding the A in, in STEM and having it STEAM, it definitely makes sense. And I, and I think that's going to be... Um, uh it's actually there's actually another really interesting angle around this which is the rise of uh, no code tools mm-hmm. um and so that's kind of again something that's a little bit more recent but this idea of making um kind of application development and software development more broadly uh, more accessible to uh, people of all levels of coding ability um and so you might actually even uh, you know see a future say like in the next decade or so where you know you don't necessarily even need programming skills um or no not like kind of traditional programming skills to create an application because there will be so many no-code tools available that would allow you to do so. And it's really going to be around design and, you know, coming up with like this really insightful, impactful idea. Um, Again, I'm, I'm coming out of my depth here. So is that, (laughs) so you're saying it's, it's basically shortening the learning curve or flattening out. Yeah. Shortening the learning curve um, or trying to think would be like a really great analogy. It's Uh, kind of like, I guess, I guess guess in the early days when people used to hard code websites and literally just used HTML and now there's and then you have things like Squarespace, for example, uh-huh. <laughs> right? that makes it really easy for like yeah. anyone to you know throw up a website as long as you know how to you know upload photos and you know, you know how to categorize your data correctly, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's probably uh, just providing a more kind of user-friendly interface. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that might be like drag and drop, or like you know just you know type in this thing here and will kind of automatically be processed on the back end for you. Um, you know things that don't really require kind of traditional programming skills. Well, it's funny. Um, my next question, and I, I wish I'd asked this a little sooner, because mm-hmm. I, I tend to, when when speaking about, and I really don't get asked a lot about robotics, but when, when speaking about like robotics, I always kind of tie it to automation. Mm-hmm. And I know there's, um, there is some overlap there, but would love for you to kind of like, at least from your point of view, how are they the same? How are they different, et cetera? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think it really depends very much on the context in which you're using these terms. Sometimes they can be interchangeable, sometimes they're not. Um, but, you know, one, one kind of interesting factoid I always like to drop in is uh, the original word for robot uh, comes from the Czech word, uh, robota, uh, meaning forced labor. Um, and so that kind of gives you a sense of where people were coming from um, in the early days when they were thinking about robots. Um, but, you know, it's it's really, a, if you think about the two terms, just think of them as kind of overlapping uh, Venn diagrams or Venn circles. 
circles, right? So automation, I'd say uh, broadly is kind of the systematic application of a technology uh, towards a specific purpose, right? You know, with the goal of kind of disintermediating any kind of, you know, manual intervention, uh, whereas, you know, robots, um, they can be used in automation, uh, but there are definitely robots that uh, don't follow any kind of process and therefore, you know, brings up the question, well, what are you automating then, right? Um, and so toys, for example, are a very kind of clear-cut example of, hey, it's a robot, it has a sensor, it does things, <laughs> but it's not really automating anything in particular. Um, and so, you know, easy way to think about it. You can have automation without robots and you can have robots that aren't involved in automation. There's, you know, some sliver of, you know, the world in which the two overlap. Um, but, you know, there are definitely examples where the two don't. You you mentioned earlier, you know, the the dishwasher. Yes. Uh, I'm probably, I, I guess you're referring to the, the appliance that is of the dishwasher. That yes. would be a great melding of a robot and Something yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there's actually like a lot of tools really around the house yeah. um, that, you know, I would consider, um, you know, to be robots technically, even if we don't necessarily think of them as robots. And, and so one of the things that I remember when I was at Cafe X um, that I always kind of uh, thought would be a, a metric of success is when we were no longer marketed as like the robotic coffee bar, right? So in the early days, you know, off, you know, often just to sort of get people used to the idea, you're going to throw in the word robot there, like robotic coffee bar, robotic bartender, robotic such and such. Mm -hmm. But really at the end of the day, um, you know, very often you throw in the term robot when it hasn't become a, a very kind of clear cut, you know, um, part of your life. And so, you know, tools like the dishwasher, for example, they have their own name. You don't call like a, a robotic dish cleaner, for example, just <laughs> a dishwasher, because it is such um, an integral part of your life now that it's just, it's just a dishwasher. And so, you know, for, you know, things like Cafe X, like I would love for Cafe X to just be like, hey, this is just your neighborhood cafe. It's not like the robotic cafe. It's just your neighborhood cafe. Mm -hmm. um, and I think similar, um, you know, you know, to uh, companies like um, uh, Zoom or Creator or whatever, they, they'd probably love to like, you know, have people stop thinking of them as like the robotic pizza maker um, or delivery thing or like the robotic burger maker. It's just like, hey, this is your local burger joint. Um, or this is like, you know, your local, like, you know, salad joint, et cetera, et cetera. Do you see, do you see us, and, and this is probably going to be part of one of my last questions, but do you see us getting to a point, obviously, where, not the behavior, but it's almost accepted and just really just generally accepted? Because, I, I, again, I've, I've read follow-up articles in, in those same Walmart stores where people are like, wow, this is kind of creepy. <laughs> you know, they see someone who says hello, and then they're they're just kind of straightening up shelves and et cetera, and, and and people are just not used to it. You see us getting on that path of of some sort of acceptance and understanding of of uh, the robotic trend. Absolutely, from I, a consumer I mean, think about. I'm sorry, from a consumer yeah, standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, think about you know how quickly uh, we got used to ordering things online. Yeah. Right. You know, just e-commerce in the last like decade or two has exploded. You know, unimaginably. Um, I can't even imagine like. You know, I can't even imagine like, you know, buying anything without Amazon these days. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> exactly. Right? Like what, what did, like, where did, did we, we just go to like buy like random things? Oh yeah, we had to like drive <laughs> somewhere to like a physical store and like go through all the shelves and pick out that one thing. Like, it, and it's unimaginable, right? So absolutely, I think that, you know, people will get used to it. I think in a lot of countries people already have, you know, in Japan, mm -hmm. again, 
uh, which I think is very much at the forefront of a lot of these things, primarily because of demographic challenges, right? You know, they they are experiencing a heavy, heavy labor shortage. Um, uh, because, you know, uh, their population skews much older um, than the United mm. States. Um, and, and so absolutely, I think that uh, people will become very, very much accustomed uh, to, you know, robots just kind of being in the hum of the background, mm-hmm. uh, you know, doing things and taking care of things so that you don't even have to think about it. Is it really, you think, the an aging population that, I mean, that's that's one trigger um, that causes the, the, the dearth in labor and then thus... Japan having to create these um, these these items or instruments to kind of like solve that, or is, is it something else? Because again, everything ties back to labor, and for us in the states, I guess it is the the cost of it. I mean, there's no getting around it. But are there other triggers that, other than I guess maybe convenience that that are triggering the the, the trend? Um, so, you know, very often from a product perspective, you really just kind of want to think about like, um, you know, what are the pain points that you're solving yeah. for? Um, and so, you know, there's kind of the uh, supply side of things, which is the labor labor question, right? And then there's demand side. So that's things like, um, you know, uh, convenience, uh, quality of whatever it is that you're, you're trying to uh, obtain, um, uh, the cost of something. Um, any kind of like opportunity costs perhaps associated with it, you know, in addition to monetary costs. Mm-hmm. And so I think all of those things kind of play a part in that. Um, and so, you know, um, for example, like uh, the the transaction costs, there's like um, the actual, you know, money that you pay, but there's also like the time it takes to process mm-hmm. that transaction, right? So to the extent that, you know, unattended retail, for example, like, you know, the Amazon Go stores and those types of concepts are implemented um, and that reduces the time of the transaction, um, then that is something that could also like, you know, drive these, uh, drive adoption of these technologies forward. You mentioned costs, and that was kind of like my next the next topic I wanted to get into. Um, I've spoken to several folks um, who have machines or experiences that are similar to like a Cafe X, and and they had the same thing. Like, there's so much demand, but then there's a the challenge of getting them made and then obviously implemented. Do you see us, meaning us in a general sense, being able to keep pace with the demand and the co- due to the cost of producing these things? Because you said it's it's pretty intricate to it's not like an assembly line robot, I guess. Uh, it's not. It's not an assembly line robot in the early days, right? And so I think part of it is that you know, for a lot of these companies that are tackling these problems um, in the kind of you know food retail, mm-hmm. um, you know, automation robotics space, they're pretty new for the most part. You know, um, you know, with the exception of Creator, which is a little bit older, a lot of them are kind of formed in that sort of 2014, 2015 timeframe. So they're really only about five years old. Um, I, I think that's not even really primary school yet. Um, <laughs> no. uh, so, so you know, uh, and and so that's kind of where a lot of these companies are um, in terms of maturity in the manufacturing process. And that's really just something that any company, regardless of whether it's a robotics company or not, um, has to face as it continues to scale, which is, you know, how do you add enough resources uh, to meet mm-hmm. demand? Um, and so absolutely, I think that this can be solved. It's just that there's always going to be those like little hiccups in the interim as you are growing, um, you know, from a seed stage to a series A to a series B company um, that you're just going to have to like up level along the way. Bringing it to my industry, airports, uh, yes. which you were in for some time, but where could you see other applications here? I mean, we, we touched on obviously retail and dining, and that's where I'd love to take this, but where beyond 
that could you see uh, robotics are being applied? In, in, yeah. in, in terms of like, so let me, I'll, I'll back that up a little bit and say, you know, we changed our name to Airport Experience News because we cover everything that impacts the traveler's journey from curb to gate. So knowing the parameters of that space, you know, so where do you see, I guess, a robotic application uh, during that point? Yeah, I mean, there's there's so many, right? So if you, <laughs> um, so you know, uh, at the at the start, um, you know, uh, you know, a lot of airplanes are actually used for cargo transportation, not just mm -hmm. people transportation, right? Um, and so oftentimes, airports actually have like you know very very large warehouses, um, and so there's a whole industry around warehouse robotics um, that are being tackled by companies like Fetch Robotics, Fox Robotics, which is actually based right here in Austin, um, and they're you know in the business of like you know moving things around within the warehouse environment, um, getting a little bit closer to the passenger side of things, um, you know, in addition to kind of you know moving you know pallets and luggage mm -hmm. there's also like people moving systems right so yeah. uh, there's a company based up in vancouver called a and k robotics um, and they're doing trials in three airports already in north america and europe and you know they're tackling the problem of like you know moving people um who you know may have limited mobility for whatever yeah. reason um from you know one gate to another and you know currently that's kind of uh, something that's being done by human beings but again there's you know a labor shortage um, and, you know, a kind of skills shortage sometimes in these cases that need to be tackled. Um, and then there's also things like, you know, security and cleaning, which I think people don't tend to think about as much because it's not really at the forefront of the passenger experience. Well, security, maybe, mm -hmm. um, especially with TSA. But, you know, there, there's a lot of sort of more general kind of airport security and cleaning that could be absolutely done by robots. Um, and you kind of see these technologies already being applied in more kind of commercial building environments. Um, but there's no reason why it couldn't be applied equally um, to an airport. So uh, on the security side, uh, there's a company called Cobalt Robotics uh, that's based in the Bay Area. And they, they, just, they just kind of do like, you know, patrols essentially. Um, mm -hmm. There's no reason why they can't do that in an airport. Uh, there's well, a lot of cleaning robots that can uh -huh. you know, clean floors and there's no reason why they can't do that in an airport as well. Well, you mentioned security, and again, uh, taking this from a layperson's perspective, that is, I guess, the area that I'm, I personally am a little hesitant in. Is there security in terms of, you know, we see things about hackers and and how uh, we, and I do believe Russia hacked our elections, but you know, <laughs> things like that 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 leave us rather vulnerable, and and it's kind of on two fronts, I guess. I guess that raises the um, the focus of an industry on cybersecurity, but also then in, a, in an environment like airports where everything is secure, everything is constrained. And there's, I guess there's, there should be an added layer of um, a wall, <laughs> I guess to protect from, God forbid, like a, a robot obviously all of a sudden being taken over. Well, put it this way, I, I saw <laughs> like a couple, no seriously, I saw this a couple of weeks ago. It was, uh, I think something on BuzzFeed or something where basically someone hacked into a ring camera and it was mm. talking to a child and saying, hey, go and eat sugar for the mm -hmm. all-nighters. Like so yeah. do you see that risk and maybe that risk causing airports to, to be really cautious in adopting more of a robotic approach? Um, I mean, that's kind of venturing into the realm of like, you know, um, uh, sort of uh, cyber, cyber security yeah. um, at that point. And I think it's less to do with uh, a robot per se. And it's really more just about how secure your general system, your network is um, as a whole. Um, and so absolutely, um, 
yes, there is you know potential uh, uh, danger associated with you know, adopting these technologies, uh, security technologies within the context of an airport. Mm-hmm. But really, if you're worried about that, you should probably also be worried about people hacking into your, you know, your yeah. um, uh, air control towers, for example, which I, I'd say <laughs> exactly. is even a bigger security yeah. risk, right? Um, and so, you know, to the extent that um, uh, any technology is secure, um, it's I guess really going to depend on your weakest link. So yeah, you I, that the robots aren't your weakest link. Yeah, I guess uh, I guess it's more towards um, you know we are an industry that's slow to adopt. Obviously, we're governmental, so I, and I always say that a lot. But it's getting better now. I mean, and we have pockets of departments within a lot of airports that are looking into applying innovations. I mean, DFW is one. Obviously, all the Bay Area airports, San, San Francisco, San Jose, et cetera, are doing it. But I guess um, they're almost in the minority. So I guess my, my to reframe the question a little bit, do you, in your opinion, see that, that risk as being one of the reasons why we might be a little slower to implement and, or even adopt, um, you know, uh, robots and in, in, even if it's just redundant tasks like uh, like cleaning, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's airport specific or if it's more just government um, yeah, agencies true. as a whole. True. So you know, I, I think that um, you know one of the really challenging things about you know working um, for any kind of government. Uh, agency and you know very often airports are at least in the United States uh, you know government affiliated um, you know is that you're using taxpayer money um, and so mm-hmm. there is a greater um, I know if it's a perception cost, uh, sure. but there, there, there is kind of like a greater risk when adopting new technologies because you don't want to be um, you know the government official who uh, you know, spent X tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars on a technology that didn't pan out, right? Um, whereas if you are a kind of you know, for-profit company, like say a Google, um, and you're experimenting you know, with some you know, new robotic solution to you know, feed your employees more efficiently or whatnot, um, you know, you're really only accountable to your shareholders and your... Sure shareholders, you know, will buy and sell your stock according to, you know, what they perceive of your ability to run the company. Whereas with governments, it's, it's a much more kind of tricky process. And so I I think I could totally see why from a government official's perspective, they might be more hesitant, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, because they do have that, you know, added responsibility of making sure that they're using taxpayer dollars um, effectively. I think at the same time, it's also really exciting, um, you know, when the government can be at the forefront of innovation um, yeah. and use technologies, um, you know, uh, especially proven technologies, really efficiently to deliver, you know, better, uh, you know, better products and services that impact, you know, millions of people every day, right? You know, if you're talking about impact, government's kind of where it's at. So uh, it's it's uh, it's it's really tricky kind of balancing act. I don't know who said it. I, I, it might have been one of, in one of the debates I was watching, or maybe something I read late at night when I wasn't, you know, I should have been asleep. But like, <laughs> I, I know someone said that, like, you were saying government is usually, not usually, had been at the forefront of a lot of implementing new innovations. And, and I guess, I guess maybe the downside is that they have ownership of it and control it. But the, 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 the upside is then they can, if it is a good technology, that they can then implement it more broadly, mm-hmm. I guess. It, would that, is that accurate to, to say? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, if if you you know really look at the sort of history of innovation in the country, a lot of the biggest advances were actually you know funded by the government. Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes, um, unfortunately, for military purposes. But you know, <laughs> a lot a lot of the kind of uh, you know uh, features can you know, sort of trickle down to kind of more uh, you know uh, peacetime uses, I guess mm-hmm. you could call them. So you know, I think government definitely has a role to play um, in adopting and know uh championing uh, new technologies but it is um it is difficult so uh, Cynthia, my last question for you is would love for you to predict what the future of erotics uh, you know holds and i i will let you choose the, the time horizon it could be within the next three years five years ten years etc is this is obviously it's going to I believe that like the the pace that we're going on, it's going to be even more rapid. I don't know if we're going to turn into an episode of Black Mirror or something, but <laughs> or it, or is it going to be? I, I definitely no. I can say no <laughs> to the Black Mirror side things. I, I think one thing that people don't really um, actually understand is how difficult um, you know it is to mm-hmm. get any robot functioning robustly. Um, over a very, very long period of time and to adapt. Um, and so all of these new predictions of like, you know, doomsday, whatever, Skynet. Like, <laughs> yes. I'm like, if if you could just spend a day in my shoes with any of the robotics companies that I, I've, you know, either worked for in the past or, you know, working for uh, today, you would be so relieved as a human being um, because the the truth is, Robots are really stupid. Um, <laughs> well, they know, can only perform what we, at least now, what we tell them do to do, right? I mean, it's not even so much about you know what you tell them to do, uh, but it's more that very often uh, whatever it is that you have taught them to do isn't immediately transferable. So take for example, you know, a door handle, right? You know, um, as lo- as soon as like a toddler is tall enough to reach it, once they figure out that first door handle they can probably open every single door in the house. Um, you know, as any, as any young parent, you know, mm-hmm. understands they have to like, you know, baby proof everything because the kid's going to get in like to like every single openable door in the, in the entire house. For a robot, they have to be taught each type of door handle independently. Uh-huh. So, you know, like the little like, you know, round ones versus the ones with handles versus the sliding door ones. Like for a robot, those are all, independent things. These are all independent entities that are not, you know, really connected to each other, except insofar that they are all doors. But, you know, for a human being, it's actually much uh, quicker and easier to transfer your understanding of like one type of door to another type of door. And very often, like, you know, once you can open a door, you can probably also figure out how to open cabinets and drawers and like all these other kind of, you know, (laughs) whereas for a robot, they have to be taught each time for everything, every single type of container, like, oh, this type of container should be lifted versus pulled versus pushed versus like, you know, whatever, uh, you know, it's, they are all like different things as far as a robot is concerned. Um, and so I think that's something that uh, is very often missed in these conversations um, is just really how stupid robots are. Um, and <laughs> you, you are going completely against the grain of what I want to accomplish, but that's fine. That's fine. No, you're right. You, you bring up a good point. That's a good point. Yeah. You know, it's, and it's true. And like, and, and, you know, I think, um, you know, one, one analogy or one example I always like to give is, you know, a, a robot can do like any single task, yeah. probably better than, you know, um, the most proficient human being 
in that one task. So if it's about, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, grinding some material into bits, you know what, the robot can probably do it better than yeah. any other human being in the world at that one thing. But if you try to get that same robot to do, you know, anything with like uh, the breadth of a baby, that that has not yet happened. Like a baby has a broader range of skills than the most advanced robot in the world. I don't know if this analogy matches, but it's kind of like baking versus cooking, right? Baking is a science. In my eyes, it's a science because mm. everything has to be exact. You know, one cup of this and any deviation from that formula, you can totally um, ruin the cake. And I know this firsthand. But <laughs> whereas cooking, you know, and I watch a lot of Food Network, there, there is an element that allows you to have, you know, a little more cinnamon or a little less, a little more flexibility. Cognac. Exactly, exactly, and and it's like, wow, this is something completely undiscovered, and all he or she did was just add cardamom. I don't know, something yeah. like that, <laughs> and that just made me think about it when when you were kind of using that example um, of uh, the exactness, and I guess that kind of brings back to why, in some ways. Uh, you know, machines like like a Brigo, et cetera, are always going to have that perfect cup or Cafe X will have that perfect cup because I give this much milk or this much coffee. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at this temperature, it's very precise. Yes. Whereas when humans, I'm not going to say we're clumsy, but we're a little less, uh, you know. Consistent. <laughs> Consistent, Consistent, yes. You know, every every human being is going to have a bad day. They're going to be distracted. Maybe they're talking to someone. You know, maybe they're just tired that day, and it just happens. But you know, if you wanted them to measure, you know, milk to the you know milliliter, it's probably not going to be exact. Um, and and so I think there are like you know certain types of uh, responsibilities where having leeway is fine. Um, and you know, there's you know some range that's uh, allowed for error, and there are some other types of responsibilities where you know precision is really really key. And in those cases, you know, a robot or some form of automation might be more uh, appropriate. Do you see? And I'm sorry, I, I lied. This is not yeah, my, no, that I wasn't my last this question all day. <laughs> this wasn't my last question, but I have another question because this has been a great interview. Um, do you see then robotics as kind of like as an industry continuing to grow? So Again, I mentioned a ten-year-old, my ten-year-old son, uh, you know, getting into the space because there's just going to be far more applications for it. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely, robotics is continue is going to continue to grow, and and the reason for that is because, you know, ro robots in and of themselves um, aren't the product, right? You know, the the thing that you're actually trying to do is to solve a problem for a group or a set of human beings. And so I think, you know, what I would encourage, you know, um, say, you know, people like your son or, or other people who are interested um, in the field is to think not just about like, you know, hey, how can I get involved in robotics? But really, what type of problem do I want to solve with robotics? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, you know, the, the type of problem that you want to solve should really kind of, you know, guide your learnings and your career. Um, over time. And so, you know, for myself, for example, uh, my wife and I kind of have this sort of long-term dream of, you know, building a robot uh, designed for elder awesome. care. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's kind of the field that we want to apply our skills to. Um, and, you know, I've been involved in, you know, the robotics industry for a while at this point, but, you know, ultimately sort of the healthcare space is yes. where I want to go. Um, and, and so I think similarly, you know, for your son, 
Yes, absolutely. I think robots are going to be involved in every single industry. I think the question is just what industry is he most you know, interested in? Like, what types of problems does he want to solve and who does he want to solve it for? And I think that that should guide his you know, learnings over time. I'm, really, I'm glad you mentioned because I don't know if this is similar, but I, again, reading another article or seeing something where doctors can perform surgery from thousands of miles away yeah. and it's performed, I know it's a little virtually, but I guess, I guess there's an, um, there's an, a part of that process, at least in that instance, where there is a little more depth and a little more skill and a little more gentleness, I guess, that can be applied. Um, so that's, that's, it's amazing. I mean, I'm just, you just mentioned healthcare. So that kind of got my mind thinking in that direction. Yeah, absolutely. Cynthia, honestly, we, we could have spoken all day and maybe there's going to be a part two to this when we look down the road and, and something else has iterated and, you know, hopefully my job is still safe. But um, again, your job wanna... will be very safe. Podcasts are not something that are going to be automated anytime soon. I can assure you of that. Yes, excellent. Excellent. Well, um, Cynthia, once again, thank you for taking the time to speak with me. Have a great day. Thank you. It's great. Uh, great to be here.